Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. We ask you, Lord, to bless us as we look to your word and help us, Lord. Draw us clear to, close to you, Lord. And Lord, now there are hard things that we need to understand. Help us to understand them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Let me just briefly recap on last week uh, for you. And I, I'll tell you why I'm doing this or why it's so important. Just read an article. or I perused an article. I didn't have time to read it, right? But the article uh, is basically philosophy. And uh, while it's philosophy, it may be good philosophy, it doesn't start from a Bible basis. And everything that we know about God, we find in the Bible. So that if we don't actually go to the scripture for our answers, we end up being misled and going in the wrong direction. Now, we start off with some presuppositions that we talk about this. Uh, basic to all our understanding of God and his ways is this, that the Bible is true, every word of it. And so what we do is we take our questions and our thinking and we, and we bring it to the Bible and we let the Bible answer. Now, we're going to have a difficulty with that sometimes because it won't make uh, reasonable sense to us, but it doesn't have to. Um, God knows what he's talking about. And when he wrote down truths about himself in the Bible is full of truth about who God is. Uh, when he wrote truths about himself, he, he didn't miss it or get it wrong or mess it up. He wrote exactly what he wanted us uh, to know. All right, folks, let me mute all of you and we'll unmute it in a minute. And um, I'll, I'll unmute you later on, right? And then I'll go on speaker view, all right? <clears throat> so that you, you can see me. So in Genesis chapter one, we have God creating the world. In Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter two, uh, all of it's good. He creates a woman. In Genesis chapter three, we, we have the fall and we looked at the fall. And let me just read you a few verses from it last week, um, <clears throat> from what we read last week. Um, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, we're looking at the fall of man, and then we're looking at the curse, right? And the pronouncement of the curse. And in verse 15, God talks about him taking on board the penalty for the curse, because he's talking there about the cross. Uh, it's the first mention uh, of the fact that God, uh, that, that Satan is going to bruise um, <clears throat> thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel, right? Um, sorry, Satan is going to bruise the heel of Jesus, but Jesus is going to bruise his head. In other words, destroy him completely. And unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of 
thy wife and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now, that's the curse pronounced on the earth because of man's sin. A couple of thoughts for you and I to keep in mind. God created a perfect world. He created a world that was uh, everything that man could desire and more. Uh, it was perfect. It was not God's desire uh, that sin should come into the world. Uh, it was possible, and he knew it was possible. But it was possible because free will had to be there. There had to be the ability for man to choose between God and himself, basically. And man chose himself. Now, God knew he would choose himself. God allowed for it because there is no love without choice. And remember that God is not looking for automatons. He's not looking for toy soldiers. He's not looking for robots. He's looking for people that choose him and choose to love him. He's looking for people that will put him first. And so we find the entrance of sin in a very simple way and the source of all our problems in a very simple way uh, in the uh, early verses of scripture. And really, we need to just accept that truth. None of it makes sense apart from that. Philosophy won't accept that as true. Philosophy will try and work out the problem of evil from all kinds of different ways. Um, but we need to accept that truth. And it comes down to to, to, to the point of, of, of you and I obviously examining the scripture to see if we see, can we believe it? Coming to the place where we're persuaded and then believing everything it says. Not gullibly, but because we've counted it to be the word of God. I remember the story, I told you the story before about Paris Reedhead. Paris Reedhead went to a college and he was confronted. He was, he was a Christian man. Uh, he was called to preach. And he went to uh, a college, a secular college, where he was confronted with all kinds of philosophies. And he said his faith was shaken. Uh, he came to the place where he wasn't sure what he believed. One of the things that one of the teachers in his classroom uh, went after was Jonah swallowing the whale. And he said, listen, that's impossible. Uh, nobody could survive in the belly of a fish. The whale swallowing Jonah, was, sorry. Uh, uh, nobody could survive uh, in the belly of a fish. Uh, for three days and three nights. Uh, that's impossible. And he discounted it and discounted scripture and it, and it shook um, the Paris Reedhead's faith. So he decided that he would have to read through the Bible to see if he really could believe it. And so he went back to the beginning as you would, and he started. Verse one of the scripture says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he got no further than that. Because he said, if God was able out of nothing to create the heavens and the earth, he could do absolutely anything. There was nothing that was impossible for him if he could create. If verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1 was true, then he could trust the rest of the scripture as well. And he said this, and it was kind of amusing. Uh, he said that if the Bible had said that Jonah swallowed the whale, he would have believed it. Because God can create the heavens and the earth, he can do absolutely anything. Now, that's the bedrock of our faith. Uh, the fact that we, we 
found the word of God to be true, and we believe it. And uh, on that basis, then, we bring our questions to the Bible. But we don't question the Bible. We let the Bible answer our questions. We let the Bible speak truth into our lives. Now, you will find that when you read and when you look at the world and when you look at documentaries and all the rest of it, you will find all kinds of aspersions cast on the truth of the word of God. And you need to carefully put them to one side and come back to the place where you trust the scripture, where you trust what the Bible says. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All of it is given to us. We have a more sure word of prophecy whereby we do well that we take heed until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts, right? Uh, we need to be in that place where the scripture is our truth and we rest in it and we come to it with our questions. So our question tonight is, is God's power somehow limited? Because there is evil and suffering in the world. Is God's power somehow limited because there is evil and suffering in the world, all right? Well, let me premise it by, by saying a couple of these. First of all, what about natural disasters, right? Um, how come there, there are natural disasters? Look, look at me at Romans chapter 20, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Romans 8 and verse 20. And again, it's Bible study night, so we, uh, we got to work in the scripture. Romans 8. And verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. Right? Now, <clears throat> what he's saying there is all of creation groans. Why? Because of sin. Because of the sin in the garden, because the creation is under the curse, all of it groans. So what we're going to find is we're going to find <laughs> that the groaning creation is going to have suffering and evil in it as part of it. Now, <clears throat> we serve a holy God. In fact, we serve oh, what the Bible calls a thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. And a holy God could not but respond to sin. There was no way that he could just let it slip, let it slide. He had, he had options. He could have destroyed it all. But he chose not to. Instead, he chose to curse it, but personally to take on board the suffering that would redeem the world from the curse. All right? So there is going to be trouble in this creation of his. There's going to be trouble in this world because it groans. And <clears throat> suffering reminds us of life's brevity. And, and keep this in mind, too, that oh, when you suffer, understand it's not what God planned. It was made necessary because of sin. But God's plan is to redeem you from it, 
to bring you out of it, uh, to be in heaven with him forever, and to enjoy as good as the garden, if not better, in that day. He's going to lift you out of it. The suffering that, that we endure and that we uh, is part of life for us now uh, is something that God is going to take away for us completely and replace it uh, with his glory in heaven. Okay? So <clears throat> you got to keep that in mind. It is in the world. It is there. And there is no avoiding it for any of us. Right? Now, what common, common explanations are given for evil and suffering? All right? Well, there's one school of thought that says there is no evil and suffering. Some worldviews and pantheist religions essentially deny or obscure their existence, dismissing them as unreal and illusion. Now, we're not going to spend any time on that because, in all honesty, uh, it takes more, more make-believe than most of us are capable of uh, to think that there is no sin and suffering. But, but you have to deal with this issue. So some people deal with it by pretending it doesn't exist, right? Second one is, there is no God. The problem of suffering and evil is a big reason for atheism's, atheism's growing prominence. We, we looked at it last week. Uh, if there is evil and suffering uh, and there is a good God, then uh, this good God and this evil and suffering could not exist if he's omnipotent. So therefore, there is no God. And you'll find that thrown at you again and again. I mean, I've been looking, researching this topic, so... Uh, any streams I look at now are bringing up atheistic views to me. And I'm kind of amazed. I'm gobsmacked uh, at the things that people believe uh, and how vitriolic they are against this God that they don't believe in. Uh, and <clears throat> because what they're not willing to accept is that if there is a good God who's all powerful, that there's suffering. They're not willing to go a step further and understand that, hang on a minute, a good God who is all powerful might have a reason for suffering. No. It's all based on what they think, and they are rejecting God because they can't believe that he would allow suffering into the world. Uh, another one is God has limited goodness. Um, Nietzsche portrays God as the creator of both good and evil, the source not only of truth, uh, but of lies. Um, and what he's, what he's got there is he's got that God is both, and therefore... Um, <clears throat> Because he is both, he, he doesn't have the power over evil that we think that he does. And there's also a kind of a, a dualistic idea. And sometimes Christians fall into this. And it's the idea that Satan and God, while not quite equal, are battling it out. And sometimes Satan is winning. And God is, on the, God is on the off side, on the off, off foot. And, and sometimes God pushes back and he's winning. That's totally untrue. Right? God is God. He could remove Satan in a moment if he wanted to. It wouldn't take him a thought to do that. Well, there are those that believe that. Uh, that God has, has limited power. He has limited goodness or limited power. And then... <clears throat> In, in, in contrast to these, uh, sorry, a fifth one is God has limited knowledge. Some theologians believe that human free will uh, has sufficient power to thwart God's loving plan. I will talk about that in a second because that's a pretty deep one. And one that Christians often buy into, uh, that God has limited knowledge. Now, in contrast to these ideas, uh, the Bible perspective is that God is all good, all powerful, 
all-knowing, he hates evil and will ultimately judge evildoers and remove evil and suffering after after accomplishing a greater eternal good. Right, so God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, God is all-loving, and ultimately he will judge evil um, and he will remove suffering after accomplishing a greater good. So here's what you're faced with. You're faced with, yes, there is suffering. That's real. Yes, there is a good God who is holy, all-powerful, and loving. And he has a purpose for suffering in his world. Now, that's fine for us to take tonight, you know, on a nice, comfortable Wednesday night as we're sitting by our fires and whatever. But that gets harder for you and I to actually take when it hits us. And it does hit us. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to build up resources so that when hard times do come, we don't get shaken in our faith. That instead of pulling away from God, we draw near to him. That's the whole purpose of what we're doing, right? So Christianity's worldview, by the way, is the only worldview to my mind that actually is sufficient to answer the questions before us, right? <clears throat> no other worldview can, 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 can really come to terms uh, with the reality of what's going on. <clears throat> um, if the world is just a jumble of good and evil and nobody has control over it, then it's a terribly insecure place for us to live. It's a, it's a very difficult place for, for, for human beings to... Uh, to spend time. But if the world is a world controlled by a loving, good, all-powerful, and all-knowing God, then while we have to grapple with the pain of suffering, we don't have to grapple with the purpose of it. That because we know him, we know there is a purpose in it. So question for you, Uh, Does your worldview credibly explain the way things are and offer persuasive reasons for believing in a hopeful future? You know, a lot of the philosophies fall far short on that. Many philosophers see belief in God, at least in the Christian God, who is good and caring and personal, as irrational. Now, don't be shocked by it. You come across that view, and you'll come across super intelligent people, right, with a view that's very strong. they're so passionate about it that it'll almost shake you. But ask yourself this question. Why be so passionate about something you don't believe? You can be passionate about something you do believe, but why be passionate about something uh, that you don't uh, believe? Um, But here's something that they really can't answer. If they are saying... We can't believe there's a good God because evil, right? Evil exists. They're left with a question. How do they know it's evil? How do they know what's good and bad? And that's that's an impossible question for them to ultimately answer. Dawkins said that uh, I know good and evil within myself. Well, there's a problem there, right? Um, have you ever done anything that was evil and thought it was good? Let's, let's give you some wild examples. When, when ISIS 
uh, came into a town and killed all the men and took the women as slaves, did they think they were doing bad or did they think they were doing good? When Hitler uh, decided to uh, remove the Jews from the face of the earth, did he think he was doing good or did he think he was doing bad? And the people he, he used to do it, did they think they were doing good or did they think they were doing bad? You see, if man is the basis, if we get our morality from within ourselves, then we don't have a morality. We don't know what's right and wrong. Because what's right to one person is not what's right to another person. Another view is uh, relativism. And relativism insists that there's no such thing as a moral absolute. Right? Okay. So there's no such thing as a moral absolute. The, the, the heart of relativism is, it, listen, if it, if it feels good to you and it's okay with you, then it's okay. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a, a belief system that can't ultimately follow itself out to the end, right? It, it, it falls apart on you, uh, on them. And here's the reason it falls apart, because, I mean, if you take a hammer and hit me with it, even if I believe in relativism, I'm going to tell you that's wrong. You can't do that. Well, because you've just hurt me. Right? And, uh, you know, the, the, there's no way that you can actually make relativism stick long term. It's not a consistent worldview, although it's a very persistent and a very real worldview in our day and age. In fact, Christianity is more influenced by relativism than possibly any other philosophy of you know, yes, we've got the Bible, and yes, we've got the truth of the Word of God. But then we try and import into it what makes us feel good. And so what you'll find in our modern, and it wasn't always so, what you find in our modern day, people doing things that are clearly against the Bible. Uh, they call themselves Christians. Uh, they're doing things that are clearly against the Bible. And when you confront them with it, they're, they're, they're giving you answers that basically say, yeah, well, it's okay for me. So be careful of that one. Be careful of getting sucked into that one. Because ultimately, again, remember, we've got to bring it back to Scripture. Scripture is our truth. Scripture is our bedrock, our foundation. And we need to hold on to that very tightly. Because if we don't, what happens is we get washed away uh, in a relativistic age. Uh, but the Bible, on the other hand, shows us a God who reveals himself through moral laws that reflect his character qualities, helping us. Uh, see what God is like. The Bible offers an objective moral stance against adultery, for example, because marital infidelity violates God's character of faithfulness. Now, um, that's how we can know adultery is evil without depending on our moods and feelings. By facing temptation, a Christian might hear his subjective feelings whisper to him that adultery is okay, but he can uh, still hold firm that it's wrong since a credible authoritative source outside himself says so. And then you go to saying there, Things are right and things are wrong, not because of the way I feel about them. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all else who can know it. Right? Your heart will, will, will lie to you, is what that's saying. But what, is, what we're saying here is that we have a, a believable, a credible, authoritative source outside ourselves. And I have to come in humble submission to the scripture and let the scripture speak in my life. And that's not always easy. And we don't always do that. There are times when we, when we pitch ourselves against it, 
But we're always going to be wrong when we do. And we're always going to come to grief when we do, because God blesses us uh, as we follow his word. He's built it into uh, the world. Uh, so the foundation for morality ultimately is God. The expression of that morality is found in the scripture. We know right from wrong. We know good and evil from the scripture. And we, we need to keep that settled in our hearts, right? Um, one thing that the atheist says is because there's evil in the world, then there can't be a God. But here's a question that needs to be asked in that context. What about all the good that's in the world? And there's a lot of good in the world. You know, um, uh, you, go, you go to the hospital with, with an old person, and I'm constantly amazed when I take my mom to the hospital at how good the nurses and the doctors are and, and how, how well they treat them. And, you know, yes, it's their job, but it's not a job for them. They, uh, they're devoted to it, and they are so kind and so uh, such a blessing to it. And there, there, there are people this very moment who are sacrificing themselves, getting nothing out of it, uh, to look after people in, in, um, uh, in COVID wards all around our world. And so if you're going to say there is no God because there is evil, then you have to ask yourself the question, where does the good come from? Where does the good come from? Uh, because while there might be truckloads of evil, listen, there are, there are boatloads of good in the world too. There's good things. So if evil is the evidence that God doesn't exist, then doesn't it follow logically that good is the evidence that God does exist? All right, so, and what we're talking about there is just consistent worldviews, right? So if you want a consistent worldview, in other words, one that you can depend on no matter what happens, you end up coming to the scripture and you end up coming to God uh, for it because he's the only one that provides you with that consistent worldview. All right, now, so doesn't the reality of evil and suffering expose God's limitations? Now, I'm going to start on this. We may not get it finished. Uh, is God's power limited? That was our question that we started off with, right? So after Rabbi Harold Kirshner's only son died in his teens from a rare disease, Kirshner wrote, when bad things happen to good people. By the way, the book became a bestseller. When bad things happen to good people, uh, it became a bestseller. And, and he said, and he said, some things are too difficult even for God. He said, I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. Now, you kind of sympathize with him there, don't you? You have to. Uh, he's lost his only son. Uh, he's been through bitter disappointment in life. And he's a, he's a man that wants to know God. He's a rabbi. And so he, he, he comes to a persuasion in his mind that while God <clears throat> is <clears throat> all good, he's not all powerful. In other words, if God could have, he would have stopped my son from dying. What he's presenting to us is uh, a kind-hearted God who would stop anything bad from happening to us if only he could. 
kind of a comforting thought. <coughs> but it has some serious biblical problems, right? Process theologians see God as changing, growing on a different level than us, but he's growing and he's learning more about the world and more about us as we develop, right? But <clears throat> look with me in Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. <clears throat> Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, verse 9, and it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Um, right? Calling a ravenous bird from the East, the man that executed my counsel from a far country. Yes, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Doesn't sound like his power is limited there, does it? In fact, you know, we can go through scripture uh, and we can find so many times where God says he, he is all powerful. And he told the angel Gabriel told it, Mary, he said, Nothing is impossible with God. Um, in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. In 2 Corinthians 6, 18, uh, he is called the Almighty. Uh, he is able to uh, do abundantly above all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3, 20. So, God talks about himself in the scripture, and he talks about himself in these terms, that he is abundantly able to do anything that he wants to do. There is no limit to his power. Now, I, I know you know that already. That's not something that's new uh, to you. But, but don't glide over it without biting into it. Every one of you have circumstances in your life that you're not particularly happy with. Some of you have circumstances in your life that are very painful. Is God aware of those circumstances? Yes. Could God change those things? Yes. But he hasn't chosen to change those things. He hasn't chosen to remove them. And sometimes we say, well, it's my fault. I did this and I did that and I got it wrong. And therefore, I'm, I, I, I'm the culprit and not God. And, and, and while there's, there, there's truth in that, it's not all the truth. Because there are a lot of things in your life that you uh, got wrong that you didn't pay the price for. So God could have stopped the, that thing which you are not comfortable with, which you're not happy with in your life, but, but he didn't. So, so you, you have to kind of grapple with that thought because you have to come to the place. Ultimately, what we're looking to come to is this resting faith in God. In other words, yes, I have a problem in a certain area. Yes, God is involved in it. 
and he has allowed it because he knows better than me. So we've got to come to that place where we're resting in what God is doing in our lives because he knows what he's doing. Right? So, so don't let's just glide over some of these things and say, yeah, yeah. That means that I have to be accepting of the difficulties he's put in my life right now. And so do you. If, if you want to come to that sweet place of faith, you have to recognize this omnipotent God could have changed, but didn't. All right, one more. We're going to look at one more quickly here. Um, is God's knowledge limited? In the past 20 years, some theologians known as open theists have argued that God does not and cannot know in advance the future choices human beings will make. They teach that a loving God took a calculated risk when he created mankind, and had he foreknown the horrible things that would have occurred in human history, he might never have created the world as he did. They believe this distances God from evil human choices and the consequent suffering they bring and makes him more loving. Okay, do you, do you get what they're saying there? Is they're saying like God created humanity, uh, he, 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 he gave us free will, but there was no way that he could know what we were going to do with it. There was no way that he could know the choices that we were going to make. Uh, so, so that gives God the, you know, the, 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 the creator position. But it means that, you know what, he's not responsible for what we've done with it after that. It's kind of comforting, isn't it? It's very popular now. Uh, you'll hear Christians talking about it from time to time. The, the, the only problem is that biblically it's not true. You see, God never hides behind anything when it comes uh, to, to the problems in the world. God got, <clears throat> let me give you some verses here, right? Uh, Job 37, verse 16, you can write these down and look at them later on. Job 37, verse 16, God says that God is perfect in knowledge. He's complete. Uh, he is full in knowledge. Um, John 3, verse 20 says this, that, that um, he knows everything. Psalm 147, verse 4 says he determines the number of the stars and he calls each of them by name. That's countless trillions of stars that God has named. Then look with me at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and we're looking at verses 1 through 4. I'll give you a second to get there. Psalm 139, and we're looking at verses 1 through 4. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Now, this is King David living in his palace, and he's saying, Lord, you know me. You know when I sit down? You know when I get up? Uh, you understand my thought? Far off, thou compasses my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Now, go over to verse 16 with me. 
Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, even as yet there was none of them. What's David talking about? David's talking about God could see him before he was born. God could see him before his limbs were formed in the womb. By the way, powerful truth here in Psalm 139 against abortion. What it's saying is, that's a life, that's a baby in the womb, planned by God. But God could see him. Um, God knew all of, God knew all about David long before he was ever born. He knew all about you before you were ever born, too. He knew the choices you would make before you were ever born. He knew the impact. Let's continue on. Uh, uh, let me just give you one more here, right? Uh, look at Luke 22. And by the way, there are lots of these here. Luke uh, 22. And we're looking at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, before this, Jesus has told Peter that uh, he's going to deny him. Before the cock crows th three times, you're going to deny me thrice. Right? It's before it happened. Jesus knows how Peter is going to respond before it's ever happened. He has prayed for Peter, and he knows that Peter is going to be strengthened. And he wants him, based on the fact that he knows he's going to be strengthened, he wants him to strengthen his brethren. So what does that tell you? That Jesus knew exactly what Peter was going to do. He knew the choices that Peter was going to make. He made plans based upon the fact that he knew the choices that Peter would make. Right? We're back to our truth. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did for no. He knows even the choices that you and I are going to make. He knows what we're going to do. So we can't give God a get-out-of-jail clause. He doesn't even want one, but we can't give him one based upon the fact that he, that, that he couldn't know how we were going to respond. He knew exactly how we were going to respond. And he planned our responses into what he was going to do. All right? So... Basically, and we've got another couple of points. We'll come back to these next week, right? But basically what we're saying is this, right? That God is not limited in his knowledge. And he is not limited in his power. He is not limited in goodness, and he is not limited in love. And yet there is suffering. So God has a purpose for the pain and suffering in this world. He is 
intimately involved in it. He's never the author of evil, never the perpetrator of it, but he has the ability to stop it. And what he does is he says, no, I want this to be in your life. So our big picture is safe in the sense that we can accept that God is involved in suffering. What we've got to do with it, though, is we've got to take it on board and say, no, God is involved in my suffering. And the illustration of, of, of the scalpel or a dagger is appropriate here. Are the problems in your life caused by people who don't care and don't have your good at best? Or are they allowed by a loving father that wants to make you better and reward you? See, if we can come to that persuasion in our hearts that they are allowed by a loving father who wants to make me better, that it's the doctor who's dealing with me, it changes my suffering completely. And it changes how I suffer too. Because nothing can be worse than feeling that your suffering is meaningless. Because you're meaningless. Nothing can be worse than that. But that's not so. So where we're going is that in our suffering, we can turn to the one that can help us, that can bless us and take care of us and be with us in our suffering. All right, so let's have a word of prayer. And then I want to give you a few moments to actually ask questions or say what's on your heart as well. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of truth that comes from the pages of scripture to us. Thank you that we serve a great God who knows and loves and is good and has power. And oh, Lord, may it be uh, that we come to rest in you and rest in all that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.